all around us. We see brokenness, hurt, anxiety, chaos, pain, depression, death. In relationships, so many arguments, quarrels, opposition, fights, divorces. Across the nations, inequality, oppression, protests, conflicts, wars. Can we have some peace, please? Shalom. This is Hansen from Archippus Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of the saints to know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His kingdom that we may receive and move on kingdom assignments according to His kingdom ways. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as always, Lord, we thank you for Kingdom 101, where we declare the things of the kingdom. Show Jesus to us once more and reveal to us your ways and the things of your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does peace look like to you? What's your picture of peace? Everybody wants peace, just in their own ways, on their own terms. To the Jews, as a conquered people, they wanted peace. But what that meant was that the foreign power, the Romans, needed to be overthrown first. By Messiah, of course. When he appears, this Prince of Peace would declare war, bring deliverance and salvation, and then there will be peace. Sounds good, but did everyone think the same way? To the Romans, they were already providing peace and keeping the peace through oppression and control. Just submit and obey and you'll get your peace. Messiah, another king? Hmm, that doesn't sound like peace to us. To the religious leaders, let's not rock the boat and upset the peace we have. Just cooperate with the authorities and do as they say. And if we have to compromise a little, that's totally fine, for the sake of peace. Messiah? Sure, as long as he doesn't upset the status quo. Peace, please. Everybody wants peace. Now what would you do for peace? If peace looks like this to you, our passage will present a rather puzzling picture of peace. Let's begin by setting the stage for our passage today in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. We've come to the part of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus makes his appearance in Jerusalem. Notice this is the first mention of Jesus in Jerusalem in Matthew's Gospel. Now, this is not to say that Jesus never ever went to Jerusalem before. But Matthew had arranged and structured the material to build up to this point. Consider this. 20 chapters to have taken us from Bethlehem all the way through to Jericho, some 30 plus years. And now in this last eight chapters, it covers the final week of Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 21 is really the beginning of the end, the final countdown. We've traveled with Jesus and his entourage all the way from the north. And this is the final leg from Jericho to Jerusalem, a 17-mile Roman road. 
Matthew chapter 21 verse 1 opens with this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. So here they are at this place. Now how many of them were there? We imagine it's just Jesus plus his twelve. But were there others that followed them? Very possibly. And these would be made up of many other disciples than the twelve. Now remember there were two ex-blind men that followed Jesus. I'm sure there were others. In Luke 19 verse 37, we are told that the whole multitude of the disciples, not just multitude, but there was a numerous number of disciples that had already begun to follow Jesus. Now, there were also others that had gathered and simply tagged along Jesus' Perean ministry and followed him. Plus, there were also people going to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Now, just take note, right? There's this huge crowd following Jesus. But were these the only ones? Now, these are to be distinguished from the people of Jerusalem that we'll meet later. And not forgetting the watchful eyes of the religious leaders, as well as the Romans. Matthew 21, 1-11 can be a rather puzzling picture. It can be confusing if we don't understand Matthew's intent. We can be easily distracted by the donkey, the waving of the palm leaves, and the excitement of the crowds, and totally miss what Matthew is trying to convey. But Matthew here provides two pivotal pieces in this puzzling picture that point to peace. More specifically, to point to the one who is the Prince of Peace, who comes in peace and to bring peace. Always remember this, the Gospel of Matthew is primarily Christological, to declare Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the King, as well as His Kingdom. Now, not surprisingly, both these pieces are prophetic fulfillments from the Hebrew Scriptures. We know that there are more than 60 Old Testament references in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is especially important and critical to his Jewish audience who were looking to the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so again, Matthew was saying, Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the King who is to come. So let's consider the pieces of this peace puzzle together. Puzzle piece number one. Let's read from our passage. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Lose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 to 3 records Jesus' instruction to two disciples to bring him the donkeys. This seems to suggest just taking the animals at will without due regard to the owner or anyone else. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, 33, the owners did in fact ask the disciples, why are you losing the colt? Well, whether or not the owners were disciples of Jesus, they must have heard of Jesus, and Jesus foreknows their response, to which the disciples replied, 
the Lord has need of them. Now, this title, the Lord, can mean one of two things. In those days, Jewish teachers could borrow animals among those who respected them. So, Lord could just refer to Jesus as a teacher. Or the Lord, rulers and officials could impress animals. That means they can ask for things and they can use them because of their status and their office. And Jesus being king of the kingdom, he has a right to ask for things as and when he needs them. Now note that Matthew is not so much making a statement about possessions here as one about the Christ. Jesus as the rightful king he has the right to anything and everything in creation, and certainly amongst his people and followers. So don't get lost in these little minute points and miss the main detail. Matthew then goes on to explain why, and that's more important, why Jesus asked for the animals by then quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In verse 4 of chapter 21, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Let's have a quick clarification here. So once again, we ask the question, were there two animals or just one? Because only Matthew mentions two. Well, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was it just a synonymous parallelism where it refers only to one, like for example, sitting on a donkey and he repeats and emphasizes it as a parallel point, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, Mark records that this colt had never been ridden on before. And I suppose then it would be natural that a colt that has never been exposed to the crowds would require the mother's presence to keep it calm and to help it move correctly across and amidst the shouting crowds. Hence, it's very natural to have two animals. But again, we must recall Matthew's use of doubling of twos as a witness. Two demoniacs, two blind men in chapter 9, and two blind men again, as we just learned in chapter 20. And perchance here again, Matthew is emphasizing two animals to make another statement. But let's look at the significance of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See, Zechariah prophesied to a post-exilic Israel. And that just means, at that point, no more king, no big understanding of kingdom even. In fact, Israel had seen many, many failed kings. Now, where's the hope? God, through Zechariah, promises that he will send a king to them. And this is how you will recognize him. This king, your Messiah, he will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt. He will be humble, he will be meek, and he will be lowly. If this sounds familiar, this is because we have just covered Matthew 18, 19, and 20, all about humility and lowliness. And the king himself comes in that fashion. Just imagine with me, he doesn't even sit on a grown-up donkey, but a baby little donkey, right? Would it appear a bit odd, a bit clumsy, an adult on a very small animal? How humble and how lowly. 
The donkey was a symbol of peace, a proclamation of peace, as well as an offer of peace. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders who rode horses, they would be riding into war. But if they rode on donkeys, then they came in peace. And there are many references of the kings who came on donkeys in the Old Testament. Now Jesus came in riding on a donkey, meaning he comes in peace as well as to offer peace. Now when he returns in Revelation chapter 19, that will be a very, very different picture. He will come back on a white horse and that is when he will make war with those who reject his offer of peace. However, this picture of peace is not immediately apparent from just Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The next verse in verse 10 makes it a lot clearer. And the Jews would have understood this because all you need to do is quote one verse and through their teaching and training, they would remember the verses that followed after. Let's read verse 10 of Zechariah 9. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Look at all the references of cutting off the chariot, which means ending this main vehicle of war. There'll be no more horse because there's no more war. The battle bow cut off. No more need for arrows and bows for fighting. He shall speak peace. The message of this king is one of peace, of shalom, of restoration, and of reconciliation. Zechariah then quotes from a messianic psalm by Solomon. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. And from the river of the ends of the earth, the king will rule and reign globally. And this is taken from Psalm 72 verse 8. So it's about peace, yeah, but what kind of peace is this? And for this, you have to look at some key words from Zechariah's passage. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, he is righteous, and he has salvation, and he shall speak peace to the nations. This peace is not just the absence of war but the restoration of complete wholeness based on righteousness. Let's understand that wars and fights and quarrels are usually the result of unrighteousness. Power-hungry people who want more land, more resources, more name, more people, expanding and protecting their own interests at the expense of others. It sounds good to them, but these are unrighteous acts and motives. Selfish people in relationships who only care about themselves and not about others. That's unrighteousness. If you look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the apostle tells us and reminds us that all the fights happen because of unrighteousness. There can be no peace without righteousness. Let me quote you a few verses to show you the paired mentions of peace and righteousness always together. In the Psalm again of 72 verse 7, In his days the righteous will flourish, and when the righteousness flourishes, the abundance of peace 
will be there. Psalm 85 verse 10, Mercy and truth have met together. Look, righteousness and peace have kissed. What a beautiful relationship. Isaiah 32 verse 17, The work, the effect of righteousness, the result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and assurance forever. Righteousness and peace always go together. But there's a little problem, because there's none who's righteous. And since there's no one righteous, we all need to be saved from unrighteousness that we can then have peace. And for this reason, the king who comes, he is just, and he brings deliverance and salvation for this very, very purpose. The first thing he wants to restore is peace between God and man. Jesus came for this very purpose. At his birth, the angels declared, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Among whom? Among those with whom he is pleased. Now, how do you please God if we are unrighteous and he is righteous? We are told that by faith, when we believe in him, it is then accounted to us, those who believe, as righteousness. So believing in Jesus, the King, the Prince of Peace, brings one into a right relationship with God so that we can be at peace with God. It doesn't end there. Jesus came also to bring peace between the Gentiles and the Jews across all nations, all people group. Because once we are right with God and we are right in Christ, then in Christ, there is no longer a Jew or a Gentile because we are now defined as the people of God. There is no longer a wall of division between people, groups or races or all kinds of thought or divisions. But there will be total restoration and reconciliation. Only in Christ can we have hope of world peace. The donkey is a picture of peace, pointing to Jesus as the prophesied Prince of Peace. But we ask, can't anyone just claim that he's the Messiah just by riding in on a donkey? Hence, in Matthewan fashion, again, he provides two prophecies as a witness. First, Matthew introduces the donkey, and now he shows us the deliverer. Puzzle piece number two. Let's read verses 7 to 9 of Matthew 21. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew now quotes from Psalm 118 verses 25 to 26. Now, Psalm 118 is part of the praise psalms during Passover season. And this is the feast of the Passover that sets the tone and context for us to understand this second piece. The Passover was a remembrance feast of Israel's past deliverance from Egypt. It also brings a hope of deliverance 
from prison powers and oppression. And later on, the Jewish thinkers saw this as a future redemption that was prefigured in this Passover. So with this as a background, you can see the thought and the ideas that might have been in the minds and the hearts of the people. So Jewish tradition sometimes applied Psalm 118 as an acclamation to the coming king. When they declared the words of this psalm, this is what they were saying. Hosanna, save, save us now. This was an appeal for deliverance. Hosanna to the son of David. This was an acknowledgement of the deliverer, the Messiah. Essentially, they were crying out, God, save this king. Keep him well, keep him well, so that he can then save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This was an announcement of the arrival of the deliverer. And then the crowds cast their clothes before Jesus as an acclamation of him as their deliverer. Imagine the mood and the tone of that event. The arrival of a prophet from Galilee that was already associated with messianic acts. This would have fueled the expectation of the imminent restoration of the Davidic kingdom. In Mark chapter 11, the parallel account, Mark adds this one line in verse 10. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Extremely, extremely telling. The people were crying out for deliverance against the foreign powers. So would this be a peaceful Passover or a Christological coup? Hopes for redemption ran high in the crowded fervor of Jerusalem near Passover, and this often required the Roman governor to increase security during this time. But it must have been puzzling, right, to the Romans. Is this Jesus really the Christ? And if so, is he coming in peace? Really, for sure? Well, it looks like it. I mean, after all, no horse. It was a donkey. No swords. Only branches. Wait, 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 hang on. Branches? Let me have a look. Are those palm branches? What's with those palm branches? No, Matthew doesn't tell us that these are palm branches. But thanks to John in chapter 12, verses 12 to 13, we are told that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. What is the significance of these palm branches? Or perhaps they just brought these along, right, from Jericho, that's named the City of Palms. Well, very likely. But why for Passover? Palm branches were more appropriate for the Feast of Tabernacles, and you learn that in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40. A brief understanding of the Maccabean revolt would be helpful. When the Jews were under Greek rule, Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the holy temple by erecting an altar to the god Zeus, allowing sacrifice of pigs in the temple and opening the shrine to non-Jews. When a Greek official tried to force a priest named Metathias to make a sacrifice to a pagan god, the Jew murdered the Greek official. Predictably, Antiochus began reprisals, but in 167 BC, the Jews rose up behind Metathias and his five sons and fought for their liberation. The family of Metathias became known as the Maccabees, from the Hebrew word for hammer. 
because they were said to strike hammer blows against their enemies. In 164 BC, Jerusalem was recaptured by the Maccabees and the temple purified, an event that gave birth to the holiday of Chanukah or Hanukkah as we understand, eight-day festival of rededication, also known as the Festival of Lights. And it's recorded in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, and we are told that they celebrated in the manner of the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles. Remembering how not long before, during the festival of booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. And they celebrated carrying and waving beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. Can you see that the palm branches were symbolic of the Maccabean triumphs? Oops. <laughs> While Jesus riding in on a donkey signified peace, the multitude's use of palm branches was an allusion to the Maccabean triumphs. And this implies that they still saw Jesus in more revolutionary messianic terms. So which is it? Would it be a peaceful Passover? Or would it become a Christological messianic coup? How will the deliverer deliver? How will the Savior save? And this was totally puzzling to the people, the religious leaders, and also especially the Romans. Well, Jesus will indeed be the king who delivers and saves. Just not from Roman occupation, but from sins. And this we need to go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where the angel declared that Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In this Passover, he will be the Passover lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, because he is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Looking at the broader context of Psalm 118, where the people shouted Hosanna, just a couple of verses before it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus will become that stone that the builders will reject. And we will come across that in Matthew 21 very, very soon when he has a confrontation with the leaders. But that day of rejection will become the day of salvation. And that day we can declare this is the day that the Lord has made and we can rejoice and be glad in it. Look at the significance and look at how that puzzle piece of quoting Psalm 118 becomes clear as we understand the fuller context. But the crowds wouldn't have known it or understood that at that point. Not even the disciples, as recorded in John 12, verse 16, that they couldn't have seen anything then, but they remembered it only later. Even Jesus predicting his death and sharing with them, it made no sense to them. Two puzzle pieces, one of Zechariah chapter 9, another of Psalm 118. Two pivotal pieces in this puzzling picture that point to peace that points to the one who is the Prince of Peace, who comes in peace to bring peace. And when you put these pieces together, these puzzle pieces present now the main point of this 
passage. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 to 11. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew closes this passage with a question on everyone's mind. All of Jerusalem, everyone in Jerusalem, they were asking this. Who is this? And this is Matthew's intent all over again. It is a Christological question, which means this whole passage is meant to answer this question. So don't look at the pieces here and the pieces there and the crowds here and the donkey there and miss this last part, which is the most important. Who is this? Matthew wants you to know. Matthew wants us all to know. This is Jesus. But who is this Jesus? What about him had been going around? He's famous or infamous? Was he the real deal? Or was it just another wannabe? Consider what may have been going on in the minds and the hearts of everyone in Jerusalem. Consider the places of Jerusalem and Galilee. Now, Jerusalem is the capital. This is the city. This is the place to be. But this guy comes from Galilee. Outskirts. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, of Galilee? I mean, that's not a place that we want to be talking about. So who is Jesus? There was also this divide between the urban city versus the rural people. What do these peasants and villages know? Who are these crowds, multitudes coming all the way from Galilee? Oh, the nobodies, the riffraffs coming with a Jesus. We are the city dwellers. We are the right ones, right? We are the good ones. Are you sure? Who is this? Now, we may look at them and like, why are they asking these questions like this? But it's not unlike what we experience today. We pit the educated versus the uneducated. We think that we have to be a little bit more qualified to be people of God than those who don't know anything. All the professionals, right, versus the untrained. I went to Bible school. I went to so many seminars and conferences. How about you? You don't look really very trained to me. Or perhaps the ordained clergy, we are the leaders down here, versus the uninformed laity, you're just the members of the church, what do you know? We are the experts versus the nobodies. How about the temple in Jerusalem? We are the temple people, this is where God resides. How can things happen beyond the temple? Same, right? Today we're saying you must only do things in church, but outside of the church, hmm, not really very credible. So who is this Jesus? Was he really bringing peace? Or is this guy coming to disrupt the peace? So we are told all in Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Oh, I love this phrase. Notice all the way in the start of Matthew. With the birth of Jesus, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Right from the beginning, Jerusalem had already been troubled and moved and stirred because of this one person, one little baby called Jesus. But now, the word that is used, it's even stronger, the language that is used. Not just trouble, but the city was moved. 
Now, the Greek word that's used to describe moved is to agitate, to shake with the idea of shock, to quake as we use in the word earthquake, to cause to tremble with fear. All Jerusalem was quaking because Jesus comes in. The crowd was there, Roman soldiers all over, religious leaders wondering what is happening here. Jerusalem was quaking. And this is such an irony because the Prince of Peace comes in peace to offer peace into Jerusalem, the city of peace. But that was the last thing that they were experiencing. Everything was shaking and everything was being shaken. Do you realize that this should be the right effect of Jesus and his kingdom? We should all be utterly moved and shaken by Jesus. The king and his kingdom should shake us to the very core. It should cause us to ask the same question. Who is Jesus? Who is he to me? What does he want with me? Do I want anything to do with him? Why should I believe him? Why should I even let this king, this Christ, rule and reign in my life? And what if I don't want it? What if I don't want his rule and reign? What if he threatens my status quo? What would I do? What would I do to keep my own peace? Would I reject him? Would I remove him? That's what the Pharisees did. You see, God is in the business of shaking whatever can be shaken so that whatever remains will be truly that of the king and his kingdom. This is Matthew's main Christological point. All the fulfillment of Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything about Zechariah 9 and of Psalm 118 points to Jesus. Everything about this passage as he enters into Jerusalem, Matthew wants to make it so clear. People of God, people of the kingdom, this is your king. Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David is a messianic line and a messianic title. Right from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he has already quoted the son of David to introduce Jesus. This is the king. Also, this is the prophet of all prophets. This is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The multitudes declared this prophetic title upon Jesus. And it would ring a signal and a bell for all who was waiting for a prophet like Moses. Moses told them, God will give you a prophet just like me. And that day came when this prophet in Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, not just the king, but a prophet, a Nazarene, a righteous branch of the line of David. And so Jesus is the king, the prophet, but we will also be introduced to him as the priest, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. 
Now, Melchizedek, as we understand, was a theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was known as the King of Righteousness, his name, that's what it means, as well as the King of Salem or the King of Peace. See how beautifully righteousness and peace would have kissed in the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham, the people revered the father Abraham, and yet this one man paid tribute and gave tithe to Jesus in the person of Melchizedek. He's not just king, he's also prophet, but he's also priest. And we will address this soon enough in the next passage when Jesus the Messiah enters and makes a scene at the temple because he's also the high priest. Let's bring this teaching to a close. I start out by saying that Matthew 21, 1-11 can be a puzzling picture of peace if we are distracted by the noise and commotion of the event. But when we put the pieces of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 and Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 together, this passage clearly presents a picture of peace, of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who comes in peace to bring peace as he enters Jerusalem, the city of peace. Peace, please. Do you desire peace? I hope you understand now that peace cannot be achieved through unrighteous ways, according to our own selfish terms. Peace is only possible with righteousness in the ways of God and His kingdom. Jesus, the King of righteousness, comes with an offer of peace. He wants to deliver and save us into the peace and the shalom of His kingdom. And He offers all, everyone, the peace with God, that we can then have peace with one another, and then peace across all nations. He offers all, everyone, His rule and reign of peace in our hearts, so that we can then experience the fullness and the wholeness of the peace, the shalom of God. Sadly, Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders and even the Jerusalem crowd who welcomed him on that day. And the Romans too, because they wanted peace according to their own terms. This is what we will see unfold through the next passages and chapters of Matthew. One day, Jesus will return to deal with those who have rejected his offer of peace. On that day, he will come on a white horse, not a donkey, to make war against his enemies, those who have rejected his gracious offer of peace. And when that's done, all of us will be in the shalom of his kingdom around his throne, and we will wave and honor and worship him with palm branches again because the redeemed will get to do that. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, to make peace with God, that offer is still open and available. Make today the day of your salvation 
and deliverance. Let Jesus save and deliver you from sin and from brokenness. And let the Prince of Peace bring you into his kingdom of peace and wholeness. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, that you come in peace and also to bring peace. That offer of peace that we can be in right relationship with God is still open. And I am so thankful that I believe in you, but I pray for those who are making a decision right now to accept your offer, that they can be right with God, that we can be right with one another, and that we can live for you and for your purposes. We look to the day, Lord, that one day you'll make all things beautiful once more, that truly there will be complete shalom, that we can then dwell together in righteousness, in your kingdom, in new heavens and in new earth. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hansen signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.